to to the I'm, end of summer. The end of summer is what and I was going to say. The start of our fall session with lots of trials. May we have success and justice for our clients. Our success Cheers. rate will continue. I have all the confidence. Absolutely. God bless this team. But we want to talk about today um, Supreme Court appointments and uh, expectations on our judges and things like that. And there's been a very interesting appointment, which just kind of leading into it. Um, do you want to do you, you want to start this one out? Yeah, I, I think it's important just so we frame this discussion that um, you know the composition of our courts. We we have complete confidence in our courts, and we respect our judges. And we have said, and I've said a number of times on our podcast that we are a beacon in the world with one of the best justice systems in the world. Mm-hmm. And I always believe that. By and large, our judiciary wants to do the right thing. That said, the composition of our courts uh, is very important uh, from a number of aspects. And I absolutely agree with the fact that we need to have diversity on our benches, both at the trial level, appellate levels, and that it's very important to ensure that we have um, judges with the ability to draw on experience, whether through trials as a lawyer or through other means of work within the legal field and academics to address the very complex issues that come before the courts now. And we are seeing, maybe I'm wrong, but we've discussed this in a couple of podcasts and there's something I wanna read in a moment, but I'll leave it for a second. We've addressed that we've seen some divides recently in some recent cases where we see a sharp contrast between a portion of our Supreme Court of Canada and a majority with respect to criminal law issues Mm -hmm. and where there have been words used like this will create wrongful convictions. And ad hocery. Yeah. There was a word used by one of the dissenting opinions. Which is very interesting, and, and I, I'm really looking forward to talking about the value of dissents and, and what they can do. But um, I remember, like, this isn't a new issue in terms of expectations from the community on decisions and, you know, judges who are coming in. The very, very first woman, this is where I'm kind of going, Bertha Wilson, very first woman appointed to the Supreme Court. She gave a speech as she was retiring on, um, can women judges change the legal system? And she said, the expectations on me, you know, I had to be impartial. So, you know, you know, but then I came to realize that you can never be completely impartial because everybody's coming in with their own experiences. And then she issued her last decision, which I have a few issues with. But well, she- there were some wonderful comments from Beverly McLaughlin when she gave a speech in 2017 um, about the trial process. And it has a lot to do about how we talk about arguments with respect to sexual assault cases and she said a number of things and let me just do this to frame our discussion it's worth today. reading actually those the at least two paragraphs from that section because the way she worded it i thought was extremely well thought out and very important for the demands being made on the legal system and if, and for those who aren't necessarily familiar with uh, the honorable justice beverly mclaughlin she was a a member of the Supreme Court of Canada uh, before, and this is upon her retirement, I think. Yes, yeah, so she was uh, on Supreme Court of Canada for quite Chief a long Justice. period of time. Chief she Justice. Was Chief exactly. Justice. Um, and uh, 
excellent writer. And on, upon her retirement, she gave this speech and she said, while the focus in criminal trials is often on the accused, the accused is not, only, is not the only actor in the criminal justice process. Complainants and victims are also part of the process. We must guarantee a fundamental trial and sentencing for accused persons by upholding basic charter rights and long-standing common law evidentiary and procedural provisions. More importantly, these are my favorite parts. Because of the draconian consequences. Draconian, because people actually make it sound like going to jail isn't a big deal. It's just like a timeout. It's like it's a, a literal expression mm -hmm. that was used by some complainants. Oh, it would just be like a timeout. Draconian measures. The criminal law has long demanded high standards for conviction for a crime. If convicted, a person may be imprisoned for a very long period of time and lose the most precious thing without everything else. His or her liberty will be lost. The potential for a wrongful conviction, this is important. I'm going to repeat this. The potential for a wrongful conviction always waits in the wings. So the law for centuries has rightly insisted on credible evidence, a vigorous right of cross-examination, and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's important. Something that's not mentioned enough. No. Outside of This defense. has been totally lost recently. There is an obvious tension between the rights that are essential to a fair criminal trial and the expectations that may sometimes arise on the part of complainants. And the criminal law must navigate this tension, but it can only do so effectively if all sides have realistic expectations about what the criminal process can and cannot do. Complainants and witnesses need to understand what is required of them in a trial and what they can realistically expect from it. No one has the right to a particular verdict, but only to a fair trial on the evidence. Complainants have a right to be treated seriously and respectfully at all stages of the criminal process, and they may have the need, if not the right, to counseling to help them through the trial process. I believe that we can have a robust right to defense with the safeguards of cross-examination and the requirement of proof beyond a reasonable doubt without compromising fundamental principles of dignity and respect for complainants. And it goes on. So but this was a very... The expectations mm -hmm. part is so important because when you look at, at a lot of the articles that advocacy groups uh, and activists um, sort of are, are, are quoted in and, and the, way, the way the legal system and justice for victims is talked about, they talk about numbers. And they start from this concept that only 0 0.003, like some minuscule number of actual rapists get convicted, but that's not people who have, they can confirm were sexually assaulted and there's so many flaws with their numbers. Where they start from, if you were to have 100% charge um, policy, everybody gets charged, everybody goes to trial, everybody gets convicted, they would still say it's abysmally low. So that's the expectation on our system. Right. And, and, and so would linking this back to a few episodes, you know, when we spoke about the decision in um, with respect to the definition of sexual activity and then the um, 
the case with respect to the challenge to Bill C-51, which was the regime for 276, 278 applications, which was upheld. And the dissent specifically said that this is a recipe for wrongful convictions. This dovetails with this very importantly, and we bring it back to our discussion about the courts. But I just want to repeat this one more time. If convicted, a person may be imprisoned for a very long time and lose that most precious thing without which everyone else holds important. What's that? Well, people Liberty. Don't, people don't know what they have until they lose it. Right. right. And the potential for a wrongful conviction always waits in the wings. This is really a good statement to frame our discussion that the expectation for the criminal trial is now at risk. It should not be something where it's cathartic, where you're gonna get justice just because you said you were offended in some way. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel the solemnity and the seriousness of a trial has been lost recently. And you know, how does this translate now into our, our composition of the Supreme Court of Canada and our courts and how we deal with these, these cases? So we have this new appointment, and um, so there's a lot of expectations on what she might do and bring to the court because she is a female Indigenous uh, woman. Her name's Michelle Obonsoin. And, um, and congratulations. Congratulations, yeah. 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 It's, it's and, wonderful to have diversity on the bench. Yeah, and I, I actually watched a video of her prior to her um, application to the Supreme Court talking about how she became a Superior Court judge. And it, and it actually, she sounds very sincere. Um, very passionate about what she's doing. And she also openly acknowledged when she went from the work that she was doing as a lawyer to her appointment to Superior Court, she acknowledged that she was going to have to do a lot of work to learn about, because they were entirely different types of cases than what she'd been litigating that she expected to hear. So I expect the same thing will happen going into the Supreme Court now that she's going to. Uh, she had a mentor that she brought on to help her quickly get up to speed on what she was doing. So I, you know, I believe that she actually is you know, one of these people who's just passionate about her work and and loves her job, and, and she's going to do the best she can do. Right, and it's impossible to forecast uh, <clears throat> from a person's pedigree how they're going to turn out because there, you know, um, there are plenty of people who, in their background, had uh, judges who had nothing but civil backgrounds who became some of our uh, best. Uh, criminal jurists on the Supreme Court. So um, the fact that she doesn't have uh, what appears prior to being appointed to the uh, Court of um, Superior Court, rather, any criminal background um, doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> and we're talking bad. about this because there's been some harsh criticisms of this appointment that were published in the, in the news in the mainstream media yeah so um which you know brings to her attention if she's aware of it or whatever you know the the things that that she's going to have to show people that she's that she's capable and so on and you know to some degree is like you know she, she seems like she's open to challenges so so you know, the the Canadian system for appointments is very different than what we see in the United States, um, which is probably uh, what we're most familiar with, if only because of the news and televised nature. So there there isn't a real kind of vetting process that occurs in the public. Uh, so you know, part of 
what we do uh, as defense lawyers and people trying to take a look at uh, what's coming down the pipe and try to think about how uh, people will, uh, judges will uh, be ruling in the future on some very uh, important issues that'll come before them is to look at uh, their background, their the history. And uh, key to that is, of course, typically you look at publications, you know, if they're academics, uh, what they've written in the past, <clears throat> and judges, um, what their decisions are, right? And there are, you know, a number of reported decisions. The decisions that a judge writes in Superior Court or pronounces on aren't all published. Right. Um, so uh, it really kind of depends. There's there's a lot more that's published today than there used to be, uh, simply because it's a lot easier to throw it on the electronic databases. So, um, you know, reviewing her decisions, because um, she's not really known as an academic in the sense that although she completed a doctorate, her thesis... Um, it was in a very uh, specialized area. It's a very niche area and uh, is not available for review. Uh, it was on mental health uh, law and uh, Gladue principles with respect to indigenous individuals, which is very important. I mean, I once spent a period of time on the Ontario Review Board with respect to uh, mental health issues and criminal law, and Gladue principles we just are very important. Gladue principles are. Gladue principles are a. Uh, a doctrine really where we have to look at particular uh, factors related to indigenous individuals when engaged in the criminal law system or in the uh, mental health system uh, that overlaps criminal law uh, so that we can address issues of discrimination my chair is squeaking their experiences again, of the their world experiences and, of their world and, and trauma and so etc yeah. and so it's very important to take that into consideration but it's, it's mostly a, for sentencing, though, isn't it? No, 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 it not necessarily. To bail, you you can look well. at it for bail, even prosecution, if you want. Uh, you know, for diverting a case, you you look at it. Yeah. Uh, then, if somebody's convicted on sentencing, you take it sometimes into consideration in uh, restorative justice principles. Mm -hmm. And then, in the mental health area, the the review boards look at people who've committed offenses but were not criminally responsible and brought into the mental health area and how you apply it in that regard. So it's very robust, and these are good, important principles, but it's a very niche-specific area. And I don't know what that paper says because we can't read it. Right. Um, I'm sure it's well-written and it's insightful, but, you know, because her, her past history has been with respect to working in the private sector. She was uh, in-house counsel with Canada Post for approximately, you know, I think six it's or seven labor years. labor law, dealing with unions. And then at the Royal Ottawa Healthcare Group, uh, which we're very familiar with because we've worked a lot with uh, with Royal Ottawa Hospital. Um, so that was her bailiwick. Mind you, I did a brief stint with Canada Post, and I can tell you nothing is easy in Canada Post. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these are very specialized areas. Yeah. Um, but, but then she did have like five years in Superior Court where she said that she was aware she had to learn the, the three main areas of litigation, which were going to be civil, criminal, and family law. Yeah, and, she and took then on we have mentor. to look at the track yeah. record with respect to the criminal the, trial. One of my <laughs> questions is, like, you know, there's a big deal made about she's not just Indigenous, but she's female Indigenous, and it's like, so how much pressure is she going to be under to make rulings, just like Bertha Wilson was talking about, 
that she was expected to be not impartial because I, I thought in her questionnaire she did actually put some emphasis on you know the importance of impartiality. Look, I, I you know I've read this with you and and I, I think she's and we're you know I think this is important to talk about too just because the criticisms in the news have been really harsh. Yeah, Let, let's push that aside. We we need this our this is our Supreme Court justice and and she deserves our support and respect. So I think she's going to try very hard to be impartial and to, and to be a judge first. And to okay. prove that it's not just a political appointment, that she actually has merit that she can bring to the table. Right. Yeah. But... Because that's what it's being with all due respect, presented as. With all due respect. Sometimes here in the trenches, we look at what their track record is because one of the most important issues judges get to deal with is liberty. Money and rights to assets and land. We're not talking about the right to important. buy things, you know, whether you get taxed or not. We're talking about the loss of your ability to even leave a room. <laughs> which is why I which and... is why I wanted to sort of frame this with Justice McLaughlin's comments about the loss of something which is so precious and resulting in imprisonment. Because when somebody's accused of a criminal offense, I know we don't have to repeat this for our viewers, but when you're charged with a criminal offense and God forbid convicted and sentenced, your life's f***ing over for most people. Yeah, yeah, and quite often people lose everything that they've built just at the moment they're charged. Their before families. They, even if they're acquitted, they, they lose everything. Well, we everything. look at cancel culture now, right? So, like, that's why I wanted to frame this discussion with Justice McLaughlin's comments, which, you know, was refreshing upon retirement because, you know, we didn't necessarily agree with many of her decisions. But God bless her, her comments and were very... It's my squeaking again? No, no, I was just going to say, it, it, there was actually an article in the Globe and Mail saying that she was tone deaf when she wrote that. <laughs> yeah, she was not tone deaf. And, and that was written by a lawyer, who I'm not going to name, but but this, he was proud of his opinion because he published in the Globe and Mail, but, but she was called tone deaf for those comments. I absolutely... Look, for what whatever experience you give me for 30 years of doing this and working hard, these comments were excellent mm -hmm. and they were insightful 100%. and they were bang on. Yeah. And you can't look to the criminal justice system to solve all the issues. It's right. going to be a battle of competing interests. And that's just the way it's going to be. But, but what's at stake ultimately is somebody's liberty. And that's why we have to have a high standard. That's why there needs to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's why we need credible evidence. That's why we need strong protection for cross-examination. That said then, when we have appointments to the Supreme Court of Canada, leaving aside this person, sometimes we gotta look at the track record, whatever it is in the court system, if they've been appointed from the bench and there was an appointment from the bench and the track record is not great. Uh, yeah, so maybe I can- In a gentle and respectful way. In a gentle, respectful way. Sometimes yeah, you have to. Sometimes you have to find not guilty. Right. It's very scary, given our experience of how many innocent people are accused. And it's accused. not because of. And sometimes it's not because of a desire to convict. But is a, a product of understanding what really is the concept of presumption of innocence. Right proof beyond a reasonable doubt and weighing and assessing evidence that's i think a very important um aspect and i think that's one that comes with 
with all due respect, years of prosecuting and defending cases. When you start to uh, learn how quickly what appears to be a very solid witness, when challenged under cross-examination, it disappears, right? Um, and, you know... Which is why cross-examination is so important. It's such an effective tool. Right. And it gets demonized as some form of abuse. Right. But it is the most effective way of keeping the legal system <clears throat> it is honest and fair. And it's an absolute essential element of the ability to mount a defense. Nobody's figured out a better way. It is literally the crucible upon which the truth-seeking process is founded. Yeah. It is the most important engine of determining truth and falsity. So getting to our uh, our latest appointment yeah. background, um, with the caveat that not all decisions are posted, what I could find was uh, about 119 decisions on um, Quick Law uh, that she was part of the, either she was a trial judge um, or she was sitting as a Superior Court appellate judge or part of a three-panel division, divisional appeals. Uh, what I s could surmise was there were 14 criminal trials that she presided over uh, that were reported decisions. And again... On the topic of... No, this oh, is everything. All of them? All okay. of them, 14 that were reported. There could be more, but I'm, you know, this is what's reported. So out of the 14, the vast majority, we'll save and except for four, uh, were sex assaults. So 10 of them were sex assaults. Uh, on every, <laughs> every <laughs> trial that she presided over, it was 100% conviction uh, on every single trial. There was only one trial in which she acquitted on the sex assault but still convicted the accused of uh, mischief to property, which is a pretty, you know, it's impressive uh, that uh, she acquitted on the sex assault but convicted on the mischief to property, which was um, breaking two flower pots. What was the sentence? 30 days in jail. Uh, his related record was, there was none. Um, he had a DUI or driving under the influence uh, or impaired driving here in Canada uh, for about five years before. So, uh, and it wasn't even intermittent. That is, he couldn't serve it on weekends. Was it for killing the flowers or for breaking the pots? Let's, well, you know, let's put it this way. That's... Um, 30 days is a lot for... Well, in Canada... Uh, that would be a conditional discharge. That would be no cr uh, finding of guilt and no... Uh, no permanent conviction. No conviction recorded. So so what we're talking about is normally on a mischief to flower pots. Or flowers. Uh, or flowers. And I love plants and trees and stuff like that. You would get Very normally a non-permanent record, which doesn't... Which, of course, 
has no jail. I, I know, honey, I got to get flowers. I'm sorry. Um, has no jail and a non-permanent record with some probation. So unless, obviously we don't know the flavor of everything that came out in the trial, but if the conviction is solely based on a mischief. Yes. To that type of property, and there's no other aggravating factors, like some sort of continuous animus towards flowers. <laughs> it, um, was, it was part of a domestic uh, uh, situation. Well, it's unbelievable and, and so on and what so some forth. people call flowers now that used to be weeds, yeah. to be honest. But anyway, that, we're, that we're getting said, sidetracked. We're getting <laughs> sidetracked. It's, 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 uh, to put it in context, um, for all trials, sex assault trials, uh, all matters where a person is charged with sex assault that actually go to trial, the conviction rate tends to be, um, it's 55%. Just a, Yeah, just over 50. It fluctuates a little bit, but Correct. it's usually yeah, 50% yeah. Okay, this is really important. Say that again slowly for the cameras. Because people complain about conviction rates being really yes. low. Because you would believe all the propaganda that comes from interest groups that the conviction rate is like 3%. Right? Nobody gets convicted. With this judge, it's 98. No, but leave that aside. The conviction rate's what again? 55%, which is for those matters that go to trial, which is actually 5% higher than if you just take the average of all matters, which um, is about 50% of those that go to trial. At first glance, it's a very small sample size. Okay, we're talking about 14 cases. The majority and of- I read she, she ruled on 131 decisions and she was only appealed on half a dozen and the Supreme Court restored, she was overturned on half a dozen, sorry. And uh, the Supreme Court restored one of those. Well, okay, in, in you know, all right, uh, I won't discuss that aspect of it, but what's important in, in this is it's a very small sample size. We're talking about 14 cases that are reported. It is kind of shocking that, because, <laughs> you know, you just flip a coin and, you know, there should at least be a few more, but maybe it is that she just happened to only get the people who were, you know, the where the evidence was overwhelming. Was overwhelming. Yeah. Now, the other issue that I would say in her defense is the following. Some judges have very poor reasonable doubt, all right? And, um, but... What may, do you mean by that? I'm sorry, I just want you to clarify. The understanding well, of what reasonable doubt means. Yeah, the and... Poor understanding of reasonable doubt? Well, the analysis of it. The analysis, and uh, will sometimes... So... It, you know, the, there's oops, the, the concept of reasonable doubt, and then it's the application. And the application varies from person to person in your own experiences and so on and so forth. And everybody has a kind of a different level. You know, we'd like to think that we're, you know, the judges are like robots and it's a uniform, systematic application of the same <coughs> standard, but it's not. Right. It's really common, too, as a ground of appeal that they misapplied the WD or Lifkus. Well, nobody knows test. what that means. No, but WD is the, the reasonable doubt. Everybody who's watching has no f***ing clue what yeah. we just said. But so just, what is it? Some judges have, a lot of judges are accused of having a poor understanding of reasonable doubt. I get and, it, but let's just explain what you just said, because yeah. the majority of people who are watching this are not lawyers. So WD is an analysis from a case called WD about how you assess evidence. And whether or not the burden of proof has been met. Right. It's a very important case, and it's a very good one. 
that talks about a process in which you go through it. And Lifkis is a case that talks about the high threshold. Actually, Lifkis and, and Starr mm -hmm. talk about the high threshold of what proof beyond a reasonable doubt is. Yeah. And it's high, yeah. which is what's criticized in sexual assault cases. Right. Because it's, you know, they say an unachievable burden. No. It's there. It's achievable in 55%. It's achievable in 55% of cases, never mind those who plead guilty. Right. And bearing in mind Justice McLaughlin's statements about why we should have such a high threshold, right. which is why I want to frame this discussion with her very good comments. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as I said, it, yeah. it, it may be that, uh, you know, uh, you know, there, there are a variety of factors. One, it may be that she really, it just so happened that every single case she got, the person, the evidence was overwhelming and they should be convicted. The other possibility is that she has uh, what we would see or consider as a defense perspective and people concerned with wrongful convictions, um, a sense of, you know, her threshold for reasonable doubt is... Uh, lower than what we would expect and i'll carefully say this we know permeating our criminal justice system now is a social political ethos about how we look at sexual assault cases assess evidence and determine guilt and innocence and that's by special advocacy groups and we need to resist that right. and so she may be susceptible, and I hope not, because we want to give her the benefit of the doubt, and we applaud her appointment because we think diversity is very important, and we respect our judges. And she says that you know we have to pay attention to the public, but not be guided by that because you have to be independent. But I can't emphasize more that they have to resist as judges that type of influence when it comes to assessing guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and the presumption of innocence. And, and he, he, here's just the, the other, the, you know, the other possibility is the following. Even if somebody has, you know, what we would likely consider um, uh, a poor concept or application of reasonable doubt, that's not what the Supreme Court will be doing. That is assessing individual pieces of evidence and the credibility and reliability of that evidence, which means that even if a person, an appointment, has a poor sense, uh, you know, in the application of reasonable doubt, that does not necessarily mean that when they're asked to rule on legal principles, which is what happens when you get up to the court of, or the Supreme Court, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that we should expect the same. This is an excellent point. Again, I, you, some of our episodes have been a bit academic. And again, I, I, I apologize if we seem a bit dull this way, but this is extremely important and you raise a really good point. So just because an appointment may have had as a trial judge not the most robust concept of reasonable doubt, doesn't mean when ruling on general principles in criminal law that they would have the same type of uh, myoptic view. Correct. Uh, it'll turn out that way. That said, 
I think when there is a narrow or myopic view of the concept of presumption of innocence, reasonable doubt, and what is a fair trial, that factors into concepts of constitutionality, just like what happened with the challenge to the new legislation. I think that's a myopic view. And, and, and this justice agree. appointment didn't exist then. But when people have a, 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 a stunted view, you will declare this piece of legislation, Bill C-51, this legislation that makes us have to f***ing take text messages and pictures and everything else, socks that you were given by your ex-wife. That's into a whole other area. All other stuff. No, but what I'm saying... When you want to vet this regime Which as constitutional or not constitutional, that myopic view impacts your analysis, your framework of analysis. Because, that's my that's my issue can, here. Can I, can I just make a comment yeah. too? It's yeah. like because we kind of, we should probably wrap this up a little bit. We uh, we talked recently about this uh, the new legislation, Bill Fifty One. There was scathing dissent in that decision, and this is one of the things too. As much as people want to repeat put out, that. There was scathing dissent within the Supreme Court itself. So criticizing uh, a Supreme Court justice for for what they might say in a decision or uh, their appointments or whatever is like you can hardly be more harsh. Although there was one pretty bad article recently, um, than some of the dissenting opinions that have been written. Um, and primarily, what I've noticed over the last two years that the the main dissenting judges are justices. Um, Brown, Roe, and Cote. Cote. And Cote, I find her ador- adorable. It sounds, it sounds a little... I don't know if she wants to hear that. But. I know. No, no, but she's just so cute and she's so spicy. And as a woman, you I You know just, what? She's I exceptionally... Love, she's well-written. watching the way she, she gives just... Substantive, she comes out fighting, man. She gives substantive, exceptionally well-reasoned dissents. And dissents are extremely important. Let, always, just let's roll on it for a moment about this. Because dissents are yeah. important and we have seen... A strong divide. Well, well, but just on just one issue, if you actually, it's funny you cite Cote, because if you just go on the Supreme Court website, take a look at the, you know, the biography of each one of the Supreme Court appointments, uh, she is likely, I think, uh, perhaps though on her biography. The least. The, <laughs> the least qualified? The least qualified. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, she wasn't a judge. She wasn't, um, you know, she did lecture at, at universities but um, and taught at bar school, but is not an academic, no publications, so on and so forth. So She's spicy. It's, I gotta read this. I, I understand, but I'm simply saying, you know, um, for all those, and there have been pu- serious public criticisms about her newest appointment, okay, if you go solely based on yeah, no, their biography, you, you could be wrong. You could be wrong. All right. Yeah. And I, I certainly hope because um, Justice Gote's decisions are yeah. extremely well written, are substantive, grounded, and exceptionally educational, adding to the advancement of jurisprudence. It's they, she, yeah. her writings are excellent. Because I, I, it's I, very, very bright. I, I certainly hope. That uh, <laughs> Justice Obon Sawin um, turns out to be uh, the same as as Justice Cote on on these issues, because looking solely at her judicial experience, um, 
In terms of bail reviews, there are 10 reported, nine were denied, only one granted. So she kept people in custody. Um, when it came to uh, sitting for appeals, uh, so if you appeal from the Ontario Court of Justice, a summary offense to the Superior Court, uh, the only uh, reported defense appeal of conviction was dismissed. And three other crown appeals, including on the sex assault acquittal, were all overturned uh, and sent back for trial. So, uh, <laughs> we're nervous. Nervous, nervous but, but hopeful. With respect. Yeah. But let's, let's just talk for a second about because why, why, do, why do judges write liberty is at stake? Right? So, let's say, because like, there is a split, we've got those th three judges, Brown. Roe and Justices Brown, Justice Roe, Justice Cote, who are regularly dissenting and strongly worded dissents. And, well, we've uh, seen that recently, in, 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 at least in our realm so of, why of bother? criminal law. Why There's bother? been other stuff, like the carbon tax. Because the dissent, why bother writing a dissent? It's more work for the judge and it's not law. So why would they bother writing a dissent? Tremendous value in it. To, to, um, to push... <laughs> Uh, the rest. A new way of thinking to, uh, to try and maintain principles. This that isn't are about being rubber lost. stamping. Yeah. They're individual thinkers with individual opinions and mm -hmm. assessments of the law, and they should stick by their opinions and their writing, no matter what the majority when says. When they think it's important and on, God a, bless on a major them for doing issue. That. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and this isn't just when they disagree with the outcome. They might agree with the outcome, saying right. I would I would dismiss this appeal or I would grant this appeal, but for a different reason. But we had that in the and uh, they write their the recent Supreme Court again. You know, their case. separate decisions in order to put their um, their ideas on the, on record, and um, and so when I started researching this, why bother wasting all the time when it's not going to be law? Is because it starts, you know, apparently Justice Cote uh, is inspiring law students along with Justice, Justice Brown, and they can go down uh, in, in uh, changing the way of approaching it and the way of thinking about it. And it may change the law later on. 100%. Those dissents by Justice Cote, Cote or, or Brown or, or yeah, whoever wants to dissent on a decision sometime down the road may result in a different decision. When well, the case comes we, up with different... You know, these decisions are not... Facts. Yeah. It's not science. Yeah. It's yeah. not math. This is difficult work. It makes me angry, though, because this is one of the things I like about law. To me, law is logic, and if logic applies, it applies across the board. No. And then once you get to know law, you find out it's kind of like it's a... Logic, art. <laughs> no, but it's logic, it's art, it's analysis, <clears throat> it's debate, it's discourse. It's interesting. That's can, why we're drawn to it. Yeah. And you can find case law to support pretty much any opinion. Right. But what's wonderful about this is it creates a Supreme Court of Canada discourse upon which we can then ponder later on and see if there needs to be change. And it can lead to change. That's why dissenting opinion is very important. It leads to a more robust discussion. This is very important. And, and this is a great thing. I just have seen a very stark... I don't know if I overplayed it in a couple of uh, of our podcasts, but I, th I think it's very stark in what we've seen. And we're going to wrap up, but I say this why, and, and this is where I may get a bit animated. In the last three to five years, five to three, wh whatever, we have seen an erosion of rights in Canada like I've never seen before. 
the right to a preliminary inquiry for cases of 14 years or under in sentence was eliminated, which was astounding and and not necessarily in favor by Crown attorneys and defense lawyers. Even Crown attorneys said No, bad. I know, because it's going to help clarify the case. And it's like... No, but that was a massive blow yeah. to due process and rights. Then came selection of juries. And so the right to a preemptory challenge on a juror was eliminated because of one case in Saskatchewan, which was, however decided by the jury, determined by the government to be a travesty. So let's eliminate uh, the ability for defense or crown really to participate in picking a jury gone. Even though then like the, when the main challenge came from an indigenous person. Right, but yeah. everybody's not going to get that. But we, we can't f***ing pick a jury here now. And then Bill C-51, which goes back five years when we first met, or six years, which was this whole vetting process. The best process. moment of my life. <laughs> well, uh, but all of ours, because it resulted in a much better way that we approach cases. But that was where you take you know, any type of communication or record you have with the complainant and you have to vet it before a judge, even though it was a freely sent message, email, picture, what the f***. But we'll tie it back to Beverly McLaughlin. There is a way to balance. We have found a way to take these requirements now for these new applications. We found a way to make it actually balance out and, and you know, present our case in, in a way that with all due respect, has been very successful. With all due respect and without sounding too pompous, because we're f***ing smart at it, right? Yeah. As a team, as a team, we're smart at it. But, but, but we never asked to use evidence that's actually irrelevant. Is one of the we never do, why. and we've why never badgered. You? We've never badgered a complainant. We, why would we respect, you? We respect the dignity of a complainant. But that said, it robbed from the system the right to cross-examine. Yeah, it shifted, and it fundamentally shifted. It fundamentally, it fundamentally shifted evidence in criminal law like we have never seen before so when you take this all together it's monumental and the supreme court just said that all of these new rules are constitutional and uh, so that's why we talk about you the know, composition of the court is important and and absolutely uh, and we've seen a, a devastating record of supreme court appeals where they have basically um decided in favor of the crown overturning the majority of courts of appeal they've just decided in favor of the crown on every single case and add on to this the fact that our criminal justice system policing prosecution and adjudication is still dealing with you know um institutional discrimination and discriminating policies well it's 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 a challenge i hope it is I hope oh, that I need a drink. Michelle yeah. Abonsawin um, stays, wish true, her good luck. Trace, stays true to her principles that I've heard her express. I think she's an honest person who intends well. And she wants to do well. Yeah. We wish her good luck. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And we have, she has our support and, and, and we hope that she's guided by principles about fairness. But fairness has a real meaning. It's not just a word. You got to dig down. That's true. The presumption of innocence Proof no virtue signaling allowed. <laughs> Fairness is meaningless unless do you really do, do down. <laughs> do or do not. There is no try. All right. Good Cheers. night, guys. Night. Thank you. Thank you for viewing. 
Please subscribe, like, share. Hit notifications. Please hit notifications. And Twitter, you know what? I'm on Twitter. Uh, what is it? Newberger Law or whatever. Find us on Twitter. You don't even know. <laughs> oh, come on. Find us on Twitter and just like subscribe and follow or whatever you do on Twitter because we're really trying to educate and it's very important for you to follow us and, and to promote it. So thank you very much. We really appreciate it. Cheers. You know, Cheers. you know, you're Newberger at law. L'chaim. At, at no, is law. it really? Like, at, at... at Newberger law. Okay. Yeah. I'm not good with Twitter. <laughs> okay, good night. Neither am I. Night. Bye.